Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hi, listeners. You have found your way to the Making Data Simple podcast. Thank you for being here. It's only for cool people, so you're in good company. Thank you for being here. We explore all kinds of topics. To me, it's funny how everything essentially surrounds data one way or another. Data is uh, the central nervous system of the world right now. I've thought about changing the name, uh, making data simple, because we do so many different topics. But again, it all surrounds data, so we've kept it the same, and I think it, it resonates. Right now, the U.S. is experiencing several fires on the West Coast that sparked our interest in this next conversation and our next guest. I am pleased to welcome Amy McDermott. She is a science journalist with Front Matter, the magazine section of PNAS, which is the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. And she reports on a wide range of new research, mainly within biology and ecology. And if I could give her background a little bit uh, further, She's a writer for Oceana. She's a founder and editor-in-chief for Hawk Magazine. She's also, she started at research in Monterey Bay. I, I've got to say that because I got a first question right there. She comes from Columbia University where she had a Master of Arts, University of California where she has a comms program, or she's a, a science communication program, and UC Santa Cruz for the Bachelor of Science in Biology. My first question, I, I want to hear more about your background in just a minute, but it seems like Everybody from biology or ecologist, they start Monterey Bay. What makes Monterey so unique? Amy, I'll start, I'll throw it right out there. Well, thanks Al for uh, that lovely introduction. And it's a great question. Monterey Bay is such a biodiverse part of the world that it's really a research hub for biological and ecological research, especially marine research. You know, there's been some wonderful marine conservation off the Pacific coast there as well. So it's really a, a hotspot for diversity that attracts a lot of different uh, biological and in particular interest. So I, I just find that interesting because I love Monterey Bay. I go out there quite a, I used to go out there once a year. I haven't been out there in a while now, but we went beautiful. well watching. Yeah, it's beautiful. Well, speaking of, we went well watching and I didn't realize there's like a canyon right in Monterey Bay because I was wondering well, why is it so popular with whales? Well, they go down in the canyon to feed and then come back up. So I don't know if that adds, I mean, it, yeah, it makes for the, uh, I think the diversity that you're looking for that uh, is so unique. Well, absolutely. The the place where I worked as an undergraduate, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, part of the reason that they are located right in the middle of the Monterey Bay in a little town called Moss Landing is because that's right where the finger of the trench comes up really near shore. And since MBARI, which is the acronym for that research center, is a deep ocean focused research uh-huh. hub. Uh, they make you know remote operated vehicles that dive quite deep. They're interested in deep ocean organisms and deep ocean sensing. It also makes sense for them to be really close to this very deep drop off. How deep is it? I remember they told me at one point in time. Do you know offhand? Don't know offhand. <laughs> very deep. I know it's huge. That's all right. We're, we're, this isn't about Monterey Bay. But that's interesting. I love Monterey Bay. Did you live there for a while? I did. Well, I went to UC Santa Cruz for undergrad starting in 2007. Started working at Ambari when I was an undergrad and then stayed for a couple years after college. 
then moved east and then moved back to Santa Cruz uh, for the communication program. So I think I've spent like eight years in Santa Cruz total. It's definitely been home for a while. Terrific. So uh, back to, uh, you kind of went through a lot of your background there. Can you add some more flavor? I mean, now you're into writing, you know, give us a little bit more uh, flavor on your background there and experience. I started in ecology as an undergrad uh, at UC Santa Cruz, interested in a wide range of subjects. The lab that I worked in at Ambari studied how deep ocean jellyfish flow through the process of bioluminescence, studied the proteins that enable them to do that. Uh, fascinating biochemical work. And I really liked science, process of research. So I went and got a master's, which is what made to the East Coast in research, you know, in, in ecology, but ultimately felt like I was more interested in the story of science than in the data analysis side of science, although that's what we'll be talking about today. You know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the program R, but I had to work in R. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had to work in R a little bit as an undergrad, and I think that pushed me into journalism. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I've never heard that before, though. So R actually was the catalyst to journalism. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, so I was in New York. I was living with some tech journalists just by happenstance, and they were interested in the same kinds of fascinating research questions that I was interested in, but they weren't having to come home and tinker on R. They were coming home and writing you know, talking to interesting people and then putting it together in a really creative, you know, verbal way. And that just felt like a, a lot more of a natural fit for me than banging my head against, you know, trying to figure out that software. That's why we need you to write for us, because that's what brings you here, right? <laughs> right. Um, look, and we have read your writings. And, you know, again, that's what sparked our interest. And it was predicated on data, which is interesting. So for those that are listening, I was looking at some stats. This came from the Center of Disaster Philanthropy. That's the organization. But anyway, the, the facts are there have been 7,718 fire incidents in California in 2020. This is as of September 17th, with just over 3 million total acres burned. There have been over 6,000 structures damaged or destroyed and at least 20 fatalities again, as of September 17th. And as of September 6th prior, California passed the record for the worst year in history of amount of damaged land. So, I mean, it's, it's one hell of a year. And then I did a, just a couple more facts, if you're interested in facts. This came from the United States National Park Service, and that is 90% of all wildfires are started by humans. Lightning strikes uh, over the earth, uh, they're, they're over 100,000 times a day. And 10 to 20% of these have a chance of causing fire. And the average acres of U.S. woodland burned is 1.2 million acres. So we're already triple that this year just in California alone, at least if my facts are correct. So, Amy, this transitions to you. You've done a lot of writing about this. Lately. I don't know how you got into the writing about the, the wildfires. Amy, can you summarize? You've done some stories on firefighting and wildfires that were recently published in Front Matter. Uh, and that's, you know, we, we read those stories. And I'd like you to, if you would, just summarize the story that you placed out there, and then we'll go from there. Sure. Happy to. Thanks for asking. So the way that I came to this story was last year, I was in San Francisco at the American Geophysical Union fall meeting. 
which is one way that science journalists like find stories is we'll go to a, a big conference and go to the different press conferences and talks and stuff. And uh, one of the press conferences was all about fire. This was at the time when the Brazilian Amazon was burning and there were fires in Australia, you know, around the end of 2019. And there were a variety of different experts there talking about big research questions. But one of the biggest ones that they all agreed on was how do we foresee the future of fires? Because clearly we're not gonna be able to use the past to predict the future anymore. Fires are just changing too rapidly. So how do we perceive what's coming before it actually slams us? You know, and, and as we can see in California this year, when you do get hit by a disaster of this magnitude, it, you know, everybody's scrambling to try to deal with it. So if you can have some advanced warning on stuff like this, it can help you get that infrastructure in place to deal with this earlier. I know for myself, I grew up in Southern California and we, you know, fires were absolutely a normal part of life annually. Uh, there's a big hill behind my house that would burn every two or three years, but it wasn't something where there was smoke and ash blanketing the whole LA basin for a week. You know, it wasn't something where, you know, dozens of people were dying, where in the case of paradise, you know, a few years ago, whole towns are destroyed. The intensity and the magnitude of these fires has just really ramped up in the last five to 10 years compared to anything that I knew when I was growing up there. So a couple comments, you know, first of all, uh, just a personal observation, you know, I've worked a lot in California and I, I take a trip to, to Napa every year mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I'm actually going to real shortly, even though we've had some fires here, I'm going to do it to go support some of the, the Napa wineries, et cetera. And I enjoy it. <laughs> but the story goes like this. I visit a mom and pop winery and uh, it's really cool. I like the, the, the smaller wineries. This gentleman, the guy that owns the place, that runs the, his winery, he does it all because it's a mom and pop. He had built him a new house up on the hill. And I noticed he had a bunch of cows right around his house. And I was looking up there on the hill and looking at these cows, and I'm like, they're right out the front door. And I'm like, that's kind of odd. And I said, why do you have cows right in your front yard up there? And he said, look over to the next hill. And do you notice anything different around that hill and this hill? And I looked at the hill and I'm like, I, I didn't catch it at first. And he said, look, look at how high the grass is or straw. And I said, yeah, I guess there's a lot of high grass there. Yeah. What, what about it? And he goes, I can't have that. I, I got to protect myself against fire. And this was before the fire of like the first fire of Napa last year. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. And then no sooner we got back like two weeks later they had the, the fire that they had, and I couldn't help but think of that. Boy, that guy's pretty smart because <laughs> he was trying to get rid of all the grass so he had nothing to burn. Mm -hmm. uh, I presume there's all kinds of uh, folks doing different things like that to uh, get out in front of it. I guess the first question I have, Amy, you've done the research here. On one hand, sometimes we get so much news, it can seem sensationalized. In other words, things are worse than they've ever been. But on the other hand, what does the data suggest? Is the data saying, hey, they're more common, they're more intense? I mean, is it fact? Yes, the fires are getting more infrequent and more intense because climate change is creating these hotter, drier conditions. That said, you know, it's a confluence of factors. It's not only one thing that's driving this, but the aggregate is yes, fires are getting, you know, quote unquote, worse than they were 
you know, a decade ago. I know you're not a fan of R anymore, <laughs> so that's okay. You know, we've, we've got our R programmers and the folks that write about it and keep keep everybody honest. But I presume that there are computer models now that are doing just that. Instead of the cows, we've got computer models to try to improve fire severity prediction so we can get out in front of it. I presume that to be true. You tell me if it's true, and can you talk a little bit about that technology and how it's being used? Sure, happy to talk about that. That was the, the largely the focus of this front matter story that we're talking about today. And essentially, just to give a little context, you know, the researchers who study wildfire, they want to predict how often or how severely a given area might burn, you know, in light of these larger, more intense, more destructive fires that we're seeing in the news. And so they also want to know, you know, how might these fires be spread across a landscape? And they use computer models to do all of that. So the models are already super sophisticated. Um, They're called landscape fire succession models. And they incorporate a variety of real world field data already. But one area where these models have been lacking is a clear picture of how the vegetation is gonna change in response to these more frequent and intense fires. So you can no longer just assume that like the same plants are going to grow back in the same areas anymore. And whatever does grow back is going to be fuel for the next fire there. So these models, one way that they're being improved today is with better data about how the vegetation is going to change to then have a better vision of how the fires will change. Wow. So there's several questions in there. I don't know if this is a fair question, but how many of these models exist and what are the attributes that they take into account to i presume these are ai machine learning type of models that are trying to predict and drive analytics around the landscaping fire succession that you talked about how many models exist and what attributes go into the models to help predict make these predictions sure so there are more than 60 of these different models out there and the technology I'll try to explain it by discussing one example, the model ILAND, which was principally developed by a researcher named Rupert Seidel at the Technical University of Munich in Germany. So the way he described working with this model, he said, if you're sitting in front of a computer screen watching the model in action, what you're gonna see is different colorful circles, each representing a different species of tree that are blinking on and off the landscape through time in a simulation of how that landscape will change. So the model is deciding when the trees are going to appear and disappear based on a variety of different factors, many of which are based on field data. So it's deciding, you know, okay, this olive green circle representing one species of tree is going to click off when the tree hits its threshold for changing temperature or changing rainfall, or when its seeds can't disperse far enough to get to a given location on the landscape. So yeah, things like temperature, rainfall, distance seeds can disperse, responses to things like insects or drought are all things that these models could include as parameters combined with climate projections for that location out to say 2100. So it's fascinating to me. So basically these models are doing, I mean, to oversimplify, doing two things. They're predicting the impact 
of these fires. Uh, in other words, predicting where the fires could occur and be most severe and intense. But they're also predicting, which may be even somewhat more important, is how the landscape is going to change overall. Mm -hmm. I don't know, at least for myself. Well, first of all, that that true? I mean, accurate what I said there? That's my understanding, yes. And the interesting thing for me is that... Um, you know, I'm more interested in the fire and, you know, how, how we're being affected. But the reality is what you're painting is that uh, this landscape has changed forever in many cases. It's, yeah, I think it depends. So one note on the landscape fire succession models. I've spoke in general with a few sources about, you know, what these models are in general and then focused on island for this reporting as a, as a case example. So I would say it's likely that different landscape fire succession models do different things and exactly what they're able to predict, you know, the scope of that prediction is going to vary. So I wouldn't say, you know, all of these models blanket statement do any one thing. But in general, my understanding is they simulate change on a landscape over time using a variety of field data parameters, some of which are very well studied and understood, like uh, trees response to changing rainfall, and some of which, like how vegetation is going to respond to a first fire and a second fire and a third fire are kind of the tip of the spear now. Very good. What about an example of how these models are used? Can you give me a real world example? Sure. So iLand is largely used for research purposes, but hypothetically it could be used for management. So let's say that a manager in Yellowstone National Park or someplace like that had say 50,000 acres and they wanted to know what's gonna happen to this 50,000 acres in the coming century. Where are the big fires most likely to crop up? And that sort of question. So, you know, hypothetically they could plug that acreage in their park into the model and use a current vegetation map as well as climate projections out to 2098 or something to predict where those large fires are most likely to break out. And then if they wanted to make decisions about wildland management, you know, what they want to do to try to prevent those fires, they would be armed, you know, if they did want to do that, they would be armed with more information to make that sort of decision. What kind of accuracy are we talking here, especially when we're going out to 2098? Is there kind of, is there a percent accuracy? When, when I do AI models, one of the elements is accuracy to know what you're you know, exactly looking at. Any, any thoughts there? That's a good question. I don't have a, a percentage or a number for you. What I do know is that when more recent research has added new vegetation data, data on how vegetation is responding to fire into these models and then simulated existing landscapes based on existing climate data, not future projections, but sort of ground truthed it by trying to simulate things that have already happened, they've made more accurate simulations with this additional data. Does that make sense? If we can, I mean, I might try to drill down a little bit on that because this is the Making Data Simple podcast. So it's all about data. So I guess what does the data look like and, you know, maybe a repeat of the accuracy or the, uh, the importance of the accuracy of that data therein? If the question is how critical is the accuracy of the data, it's important. You know, as you can imagine, the more accurate the data you're plugging into the model, the more accurate the landscape simulation it creates. 
So tree growth and death in response to changing temperature and rainfall or insect outbreaks or drought are all things that are well studied based on going out into the field and understanding how trees grow and die in response to a bark beetle outbreak or something like that. But how patches of vegetation recover after fire, that's been a blind spot. That's what this story focuses on. Some of the LFSM models had previously assumed that forests were gonna be completely resilient. So the same mix of trees was gonna grow back in the same spot. And other models had assumed the opposite, that after a severe enough fire, the forest just wasn't gonna grow back at all. So a lot of the data at this stage is focused out in the field, trying to figure out how vegetation will respond after fire. For instance, uh, ecologist Winslow Hansen, he's based at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. He led a long-term field experiment in Yellowstone published in 2019, where he planted lodgepole pine and dug fir seedlings in soil that mimicked like the hot, dry conditions expected in 50 years in that area. And what he found was that most of the seedlings were not able to establish under those future simulating conditions, which suggests that Yellowstone forests might change from dominantly lodgepole pine today into a totally different system, maybe not even forest, in 50 years, 100 years. So that kind of field experimentation and observation, you could then bring back into a model like Island and say, okay, I'm gonna update my parameters for lodgepole pine and Douglas fir based on the soil moisture, based on the heat and dryness of the landscape to say, okay, maybe these trees aren't gonna be coming back rather than the much more broad brush treatment of forest regeneration that the models had previously had. It's fascinating stuff. In your writings, are you focused mostly on fire or have you expanded to other impacts of landscape and ecology? By example, you know, you mentioned the beetles. I don't know why they're called. They're called Japanese beetles. They come here and they've destroyed a lot of trees that we've seen here. I'm in Kansas City. Are you, are there any work you're doing on that or you're keeping most of the fire elements for right now? So I report pretty broadly on ecology and biology. Sometimes that's biochemistry or biomedical. Sometimes it's fires like this big story here. At Front Matter, the stories we tell are really from the bleeding edge of research. So mm-hmm. there's a, an emerging question generally within biology and ecology that has a handful of new findings related to it or a really pressing question that's emerging with some answers, then I'm interested in it. So it doesn't necessarily have to be fire or, you know, any one particular thing. It's more about the frontiers of research for this particular magazine. Now, do you partner with like the data scientists that are, you know, developing some of these models? Is that is like a a partnership on you're writing about it, you're talking about it, giving them ideas? Does it go back and forth or is it different than that? My function is really as a journalist, so I am not partnering with scientists per se to do this work, but largely our readership at Front Matter are scientists across a range of different disciplines, both people who work within fire modeling, you know, might read this story and think, oh, okay, you know, that's interesting that Winslow Hansen's working on that, you know, they might think to get in touch with them, but a chemist or a physicist might also read this story 
to, to think a little bit more interdisciplinarily about what's going on in other fields. That's kind of the reason I asked you that question. What I'm asking it for is I'd imagine, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of a tech head myself. Uh, as we're creating models, we're, we get enamored with the data and what we can do with it. But I'd imagine yourself as a journalist, you take this information and you're probably, you know, you may see correlations around the data and even bring up uh, questions that we haven't even thought of yet by examining the data outside in. I don't know if that's happened or you feel like that's the partnership that's naturally taken place, but that's why I asked the question. Occasionally I'll ask a researcher, oh, you know, did you do the converse experiment or X, you know, is XYZ thing a logical next step for the field? And they'll say something along the lines of, oh, that's an interesting idea or we're thinking about that. It's interesting you brought that up. It's interesting that seems like a logical next leap to you. I think sometimes a journalist can be a mirror in that way for researchers. Let me ask you this, going back to the fires, is there anything interesting and or unexpected your reporting, your diagnosis on this has, has resulted? Any, any you know unique observations that the listeners may say, oh, that's interesting. I never thought of that. Something that caught you by surprise. I first started thinking about fire as a journalist back in 2016 when I was working on another feature story before I was writing for Front Matter. And that feature story took me up to Alaska with the U.S. Forest Service, where they do a lot of work in the interior of the state, surveying a, a range of different forest attributes up there. And there aren't really any roads. So the way that you do this work is you fly in on a helicopter off a little airstrip, and you fly over miles and miles of just uninterrupted landscape. It's so cool and such an experience that, you know, I don't think I've ever had anywhere but Alaska. But as you're flying over this landscape, you know, what I really missed was just the the extent of burn up there. It's uh, in the interior of the state, it's just these huge cloths of what look like little black toothpicks that are, you know, used to be trees, pine trees that just have been totally destroyed in the last decade. What that got me thinking about and what people are also talking about, although it's not in this study, is how as climate change warms these northern areas of the planet, the frozen soil layer underneath those burned out forests is beginning to melt. That's the permafrost layer. And as that melts, all of the sort of uh, very cold, preserved plant material that has been unable to burn because it's been frozen is now available as these more frequent wildfires come through to burn and to release carbon. And that can really accelerate the rate of climate change as these boreal forest regions burn faster and just release a lot more carbon per unit area than a place like California would. So that's one thing fire reporting has definitely gotten me thinking about is what that means for the rate of global warming and the future of life on this planet. I presume kind of what you're referencing there is like a downward spiral. If you burn permafrost that burns the plants, that uh, creates more carbon, and the more that burns, uh, the more the, the additional permafrost that melts, and it just keeps going. Mm -hmm, exactly. And then it gets hotter, and then it's more fire prone, and 
you know, so it, it's a, an increasing feedback loop for sure. Interesting. So, hey, thank you. These are all good. Uh, this is all good insight. Data being used to help predict fires, both uh, in terms of uh, where they're going to be in the future, how, again, as how intense they're going to be, and then what the lasting impacts are going to be that right. are very wide. Let, let me ask you a couple of questions before you go around journalism, if you don't mind. Sure. And that is, how do you define success? I mean, you, you've obviously got a lot of passion and how you get into the fires, and I'm sure you're writing about a lot of different things. What is your passion and how do you define success? One of the joys for journalism for me is that in addition to learning new things all the time and, and staying up to date with what's current in the world of science, we are also talking to such fascinating people who have dedicated their lives to this one very deep vein of research, whatever it is, you know, you can talk to someone who studied one fish in one cave for their whole career. And that is so not my disposition. Meeting people who, who are able to do that, who can spend 50 years studying one kind of insect in one place or, or whatever it may be, I find that dedication fascinating. I find most scientists begin their journey in science with love of something. And it's so interesting to meet so many different people that have so much love for the, the natural world in particular that they dedicate a third of their lives to working on it. You know, we need those people, right? We need that person that's going to take, you know, dissect an, an insect in a cave in a remote part of the planet for their lifetime to really, you know, learn it top to bottom. But, so what you're, so that's not you. That's all right. You, you're respectful of that as am I, because I, I, again, I think it's needed, but what's you then? What's my passion? I love telling stories. I love going out into the field with scientists. You know, I feel like most field researchers get to go out and do that work 10% of the time. And then the rest of the time is spent, you know, in the lab or behind a computer. And as a reporter, I do feel like I get to spend a lot more of my work time out in the world, at least before the pandemic, exploring with researchers and alongside researchers the kind of work that they value or going to conferences and meeting people who have a variety of, of different new results to share. I think the, the human story is fun. I also really like the writing. Just personally, you know how people sometimes talk about getting into a flow state where there's a certain yeah. kind of work you can do where you're not really thinking about the work? Yeah. For me, that's writing. That's where I can spend eight hours sort of head down and then look up and blink and the day is gone. To me, part of success is also finding something where you can get into a flow so it doesn't feel like work. And Journalism combines the things I would be doing anyway, you know, research and learning about new science with the skill that feels the most intuitive and nourishing to me intellectually. I mean, it's interesting how you characterize that. I think I'm a pretty good writer and I do get into a flow, but you talk about it as that's a flow. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that I've, I've done a whole day like that. So that's, I mean, like I'm envious uh, because I like to write. I think it's good for the brain. It's good to think like that. In fact, I force myself to write every day for those same reasons. But look, I'm envious of that. What do you see as your, your sweet spot or uh, what you like to write about most? I love ecology. 
certainly stories within ecology. And then within that, anything that's got a fun fieldwork component where researchers are doing something fascinating out in the world, <laughs> you know, if they've got a shoestring budget and they're, you know, riding little dinghies with outboard motors all over some reef, you know, in some remote corner of the world to study fishes or something like that. You know, I, I love thinking about the adventuresome side of what scientists do. You strike me as very curious about the world, which is awesome. <laughs> you have to be in this job. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. Hey, uh, where can the listeners go if they wanted to find you or see what you're where you're, you're writing, get more information on your journalism, where would, you, where would you send them to? I would just send them to Front Matter from PNAS. It's all open access, so they can read it all for free, no paywall. I've been here for about a year and a half, so I have lots of work on the Front Matter website. Any other location, LinkedIn or? Well, I, I have a personal website as well, but I would say... Oh, Probably referring folks to like giving a plug for the magazine where I work now would probably be the best. Okay. That's fantastic. Put them in that direction and we'll put them in, put that in the show notes as well. All right. Well, before I let you go, I got to play a game. We always got to play a game before we end, at least not all the time, but I like to play, well, today there's several games I like to play, but today I was going to see if you would uh, entertain us with, would you rather, which means you've got to pick a side. Which we try not to make it easy, right? We want you to be like, oh, I'm in the middle. But you can't be in the middle. That's the whole thing. You can't sit in the middle of the fence. That hurts. You got to go to one side or the other. (laughs) Okay. All right. You got it? Yes. All right. These are real easy. We'll see. Land or sea? Sea. Hmm. Well, that that makes sense. Monterey Bay, right? West Coast or East Coast? West Coast. Mm, Her love for California. All right. That makes sense, too. Uh, writing or reading? Writing. All right, I would have guessed that. These are, these are, all right. Print or voice? Print. What's that? That's probably easy too, right? Well, I love voice too. I love the radio. So many people consume their media that way. And it's so, it's such a visual way to get stories told. Did you used to be on the radio? I interned at KAZU, the NPR affiliate in Monterey, and that was one of the more fun things I did in in the very early days of my career. So that one was actually harder than I thought then. Yeah, it was tough. You you had to think about that one a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Natural. I think I know the answer to this now, too. See, I've I've gotten to know you now. Natural science or computer science? Natural science. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it. I knew it. All right. What's your favorite sea animal since you like the sea so much? The eagle ray. The eagle ray. What is an eagle ray? So if you ever go down to Mexico or Costa Rica, they're a tropical stingray and they have, they're gray and they have this beautiful white spot pattern on their back. And the reason I love them is because they're a really common really common species to see snorkeling out there and they're beautiful. And, you know, it's not something where, and they're, they're pretty widely distributed and it's, it, they're not an animal where you have to go really far to, you know, find this one exotic little thing. Mm-hmm. They're common enough and they sort of just loom up very graceful. And I always, I always feel better when I see one in the water. 
So, love wow, uh, you answered that quickly. So you knew what your answer was. I mean, it's probably a different answer every time, but I do. <laughs> that's all right. Hey, if you love to see that much, that's what that's the way it should be. Hey, thank you, Amy, for giving us your time today. I greatly appreciate it. Learned a lot. I will uh, go out and read even more of your work. So, uh, again, I can't thank you enough for being here. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was my pleasure. For those listeners, as always, like I end with, you know, please hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. We do listen and we'll get the the guests on that uh, hit the topics that you're most interested in. Thank you. And for now, I will see you on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out. Out.